This episode contains themes that some may find upsetting, including descriptions of depression and suicide. If you or a loved one is struggling with depression, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Now, on to Kimberly's episode. In lane seven, we've already introduced it. The 200 meters silver medalist, Kimberly Alcamada. Don't run away from your pain. You have to consistently look yourself in the mirror and reflect and find the help you need. And this is actually a beautiful thing. It's not scary or weakness, it's strength. In this episode, I sat down with Kimberly Alcamada a Dutch sprinter who is seeking to qualify for the Tokyo Paralympics. When I spoke with Kimberly, she told me about the world of running prosthetics, her love of adventure, and her experiences of loss and grief. Hi everybody, my name is Kimberly Alkemade and I'm 30 years old and I'm a Paralympic athlete. Kimberly is from a city called Den Bosch in the southern part of the Netherlands. The real name is Sertogenbosch, but I think that's not <laughs> easy to speak out for you guys. But uh, Den Bosch is easier. It's the main city of North Brabant, the south of the Netherlands. They call it uh, where the good people are. <laughs> Kimberly joked that Dutch people in the north are known for being more direct, and people in the south are known for being more kind and thoughtful. Now, I can't speak for the rest of the Netherlands, but Kimberly is definitely one of the most thoughtful people I've met. She's also incredibly resilient. Unlike most Paralympians, Kimberly didn't start competing as a sprinter until she was 27. In fact, she didn't even start running until she was 27. Now, to understand Kimberly's journey to the Paralympics, we have to go back to 1998. Well, I had a, a bus accident. And because of the bus accident, I lost my leg and also my mother. And uh, it was a really traumatic accident and the person who found me was a lifesaver from a trauma a helicopter and he brought me to the closest hospital and because he he'd done that he actually saved my life because all the other victims were going to the hospital in Lyon and I they brought me to the hospital in Valence in France. Kimberly was on vacation with her family riding on the top level of a double-decker bus. The helicopter pilot who rescued Kimberly knew she didn't have much time because she was losing blood so quickly. Now, Kimberly doesn't remember anything from that day, but I can imagine how long that 10-minute helicopter ride must have felt to the pilot, racing against the clock to save Kimberly's life. I've had a similar experience driving my barely breathing mom through the woods of Colorado to the nearest road for transport. Time stops, but yet also goes all too quickly. 
when I was eight years old, yeah, I was eight years old, so I was very uh, young and didn't understand what happened because uh, when I woke up, uh, I saw my father and I saw my aunt and uh, the doctor uh, tried to tell me that my leg was gone, but I didn't understand because yeah, you're a child from eight years old, so you don't understand that because everyone has two legs. And they also uh, first told me that my mother uh, was laying in another room. But uh, yeah, then the doctor and the psychologist said that it's important that they tell me the truth about my mother. So later on, they also told me about my mother, uh, that she died. Yeah, and that was very hard to accept. In the following weeks, Kimberly was too weak to sit upright, and she remembers being carried into her mother's funeral on a hospital bed. When I was at the funeral of my mother, I also was there on a hospital bed and four men standing around me, carrying me on that bed because I was not able to, to go there in a wheelchair because I was too wounded. Despite everything, Kimberly reassured her family that things would be okay. I was a child that showed to my family it's going to be all right. I'm going to make it. Kimberly's aunt kept a diary. And years later, Kimberly was able to read it for reasons that I'll explain later. In the diary, her aunt reflected on Kimberly's determination. That surprised her so much because she was like, how can you be eight years old and knowing that your mother is gone and your leg is gone and you're sitting in the chair, just show us it's going to be all right. I'm going to make it. It really uh, let me grow up a little bit faster because, yeah, it's had such an impact. And I just learned to look at life in a different way on a young age already. She learned how to use a wheelchair and then a prosthetic, but it didn't fit her legs super well and it was only for walking. Interestingly, she could snowboard really well, but she couldn't run. But then when she was 27, Kimberly received a secondhand running prosthetic called a running blade. She decided to run her first 5K. I was training towards the 5K in eight weeks, but I didn't run in 19 years. So to me, that gave me so much more freedom. I did it in 30 minutes with an uh, ending sprint. And yeah, it was very fun to do because you couldn't do it in 19 years. And then it's possible again because of the blade. For Kimberly, using the running blade was just another fun new experience. Her bus accident taught her how fleeting life is. So she makes the most of every single day when she's not spending time with her partner and two dogs. She snowboards, surfs, and loves trying new things, like the time she and her partner did the Iceman Challenge in Poland. 
Well, you experience how to deal with the cold. So what do you get if you're going in the cold water? The first reaction is <gasps> like freeze. But through breathing exercises, you experience to control that. So then you can just go in the cold water without that reaction, but just stay calm and just go in the, uh, the cold water and then go out. And then you experience what it does to your body, like all the blood flow is going. And yeah, it's a nice experience. Also a bit out of your comfort zone, but... <laughs> and then there was the time she traveled across Scotland in a camper van. If you hire a camper van in Scotland, you can actually uh, camp everywhere. But even with these amazing and unique experiences, running was very different. I asked Kimberly what it felt like to use the running blade for the first time. It felt like I got feedback from the blade that puts me in a position where I can run. Uh, my normal prosthetic doesn't have the uh, bouncing and the flexibility and the feedback. So the sending back of the energy you felt. So that's what I actually didn't experience for 19 years because I think I tried to run a bit, but it was not possible to do for such a long, a long run. It's really the, the, the energy you get from it. Running blades like Kimberly's connect halfway up the leg and the blade itself looks like the letter J. This shape gives the carbon fiber a springy quality, which mimics the human knee's ability to project the body up and forward. Kimberly explained to me that there are different blades for different events. Sprinting blades are longer and springier, and marathon blades are shorter and firmer. I wanted to learn more about Kimberly's running blade. So I spoke with an engineer who's passionate about improving this technology. I want to be an engineer to fill out the margin with the exciting and inspiring technology. And I want to deliver the delight of the locomotion for all people. Thank you. Thank you. I am Ken Endo. I am CEO of Cyborg. Ken's company, Cyborg, is one of Kimberly's sponsors. Cyborg is a tech startup for human body augmentation. Ken grew up in Japan, and when his best friend's leg was amputated, he decided to dedicate his career to designing better running and walking prosthetics. He believes that our culture is a result of our technology. Technology has the power to change the culture. For example, eyeglasses is one of the very good examples of the technology. The eyeglasses is a very good device to enhance the eye power but we are not thinking that the people with eyeglasses is disabled. But the eyeglasses have the power to change the uh, way of thinking about the, the people with low eye power. Ken makes a great point. We've normalized eyeglasses and contact lenses for people who see differently. So why haven't we normalized prosthetics for people with different bodies? One obstacle is that prosthetics, and specifically running blades, 
are too expensive for the average person to purchase. The marathon blade can be like 3,000 euros and a sprint blade can also be from three to 6,000 euros. So they're, they're very expensive. And the cost doubles for people who require prosthetics for both legs. While walking prosthetics may be covered by health insurance in most countries, secondary prosthetics like running blades are often not covered. Ken agrees that a better future includes greater access to running blades for all. Uh, regardless of disability, anyone can enjoy anything because they have the option. That's what I want to see in the future. When Kimberly tried out her first running blade, it catalyzed a major shift in her everyday life. It wasn't just that she enjoyed it. Kimberly is fast. And journalists ask me the same question. What makes you fast? What is that in your talent that makes you fast? But I think it's a lot of things. It's your body type, explosiveness, but also how are you mentally and what do you want to do to be the best? It's common understanding for high-performing athletes that mentality really matters. I wanted to learn more about exactly how mentality affects athletic performance. So I called up her coach. My name's Keith Anton. Um, I'm a performance coach. I coach in both track and field athletics and also in business. Keith specializes in training athletes both physically and mentally. When I asked him what he thinks of Kimberly's athletic performance, he mentioned that she has the potential to change Paralympic sprinting. I think Kimberly has the potential to take it to a level where it should be. And if she can do that, well, that would be quite exciting. I don't claim to be a sports psychologist at all because they do what they do when they're well-trained and they do their thing. However, when an athlete turns up for a competition, they need their body and they need their head. So a lot of the way that I work is around making, helping my athletes to be psychologically robust. Nobody knows what life is going to throw at them. And so the more robust you can be and the more methods you have of coping with what comes at you, then that just seems to make sense. So in what Kimberly's been through, she has developed a methodology for coping with that uh, and learning how to not have that get in the way of what she's doing in the moment. Kimberly, what types of tools has Keith given you? He learns me to live day by day and to focus on my task. So, yeah, that's kind of simple, you think, but it isn't. But because your mind, and mostly my mind, <laughs> thinks too much. <laughs> And because I analyze and think so much, uh, I need a coach who's more in the moment and uh, he's learning me this. So living more day by day and focus on your task. When Keith references what Kimberly has been through, 
he's not just talking about her leg and the loss of her mother. In 2019, after a long struggle with depression, Kimberly's aunt took her own life. She had helped raise Kimberly after her mom passed, and in Kimberly's words, she was a friend, aunt, and mother all in one. At the time of her aunt's passing, Kimberly was preparing for her most important race yet, the World Parathletic Championships in Dubai. Well, it was my debut. It was my first big tournament, and it was also on world level. So for me, it was an answer to myself of what can happen in the future, what I can do, what I'm able to do in the world of sprinting, Paralympic sprinting. Yeah, it was uh, very, very important for me. So you're not trying to take away the event. You know, you can't take away the passing of her aunt. And I think it's equally unhelpful. I might say borderline stupid, but it's equally unhelpful to say, well, get over it because that just doesn't make any sense. So it's about something has happened. Now we have to find a way to process what has happened at the same time as continuing to process all the things that are important to us and that we have to do right now. You can't have what's happened in the past sabotaging what you do now. Equally, I don't think it makes any sense to try and force what's happening now to override what's happened in the past. The two things have to coexist. And so everybody, not just athletes, but everybody has to find a way to hold those two things in their head and be able to focus on the bits that matter in the moment. And that's one of the things that we're already starting to do the work on is helping Kimberly to learn how to stay in the moment. Kimberly got a silver and bronze medal in Dubai. Now, interestingly, while all elite athletes train their minds, she prioritizes her mental training exactly as much as she does her physical training. What happens after loss is people don't talk about it anymore because life's, life goes on very quickly. Then you're standing there with your loss and still your sadness and then looking around and like, okay, everyone is moving on. What, sh what should I do? <laughs> because I'm still here with my sadness and I need some attention for this. It's here, it's in my body. So you really need to make initiative for yourself to learn how to deal with it. Maybe search for uh, like a psychologist or people who can help you to process it and also talk about it with closest friends and family. Kimberly mentioned that the loss of a loved one can feel isolating. I get it. We lost my dad four years ago. You are given a grace period and then everyone expects you to move on, but you're stuck with all these complicated emotions that don't go away with the body. At the same time, people don't want to bring it up and often don't know what to say or do. It's almost as if, as a society, we like to pretend that death doesn't exist, even though we know that grief is something we'll all eventually experience. The fact is that most people don't feel comfortable talking about it. This is Dr. Shear. My name is Dr. Catherine Shear, and I'm the Marion Kenworthy Professor of Psychiatry at the 
Columbia School of Social Work and the director of the Center for Complicated Grief. She's a world-renowned clinician who's been studying and treating people with grief for more than 30 years. So we really work with people to help them feel comfortable talking to themselves about it and to find at least one confidant in their life that they can really share their thoughts and feelings about grief with. So we can't just go around talking about our grief to everyone on the, you know, the way that we, we may feel like it. People sometimes feel like doing that. It's really all that's on their mind, but they do have to kind of decide when they want to do that and when not. Dr. Shear studies prolonged grief disorder, a condition that affects 10 to 20% of all grievers, where the painful feelings of grief are so long-lasting and severe that the person has difficulty accepting the loss and resuming daily activities. Our producers asked her what grief is and how it connects to loss. Loss and grief are inextricably connected. So you don't have loss without grief. You don't have grief without loss. But loss also does other things. It's stressful. So it can also trigger, you know, a clinical condition of major depression. Feelings of other kinds of painful feelings, sort of anger, irritability, guilt, any of that can, are similar. As Dr. Shear just said, depression can be a component of grief, but they're definitely not the same thing. So she developed a new therapy specifically designed for people experiencing prolonged grief disorder. And it's been pretty successful. I led a team that developed this treatment back in the late 1990s. It's a short-term treatment model. It's 16 sessions and it's been tested in three NIMH-funded studies and found to be much more effective in helping people with prolonged grief disorder than treatments for depression, and really good treatments for depression in particular. Dr. Shear walks us through her treatment model. This model is technically designed for people with prolonged grief disorder, but it applies to anybody experiencing grief. The treatment is based on a framework of seven themes, or steps, to be completed in sequential order. The first of the themes is to understand grief and accept it into your life. The second one is learn to manage emotions. Painful emotions are very strong in grief, of course, but also people have trouble with positive emotions because they feel survivor guilt or they feel uneasy about having positive emotions. The third thing we do is we actually introduce them to the idea of starting to see some promise in the future because in the beginning it really it feels like and people who are stuck in grief they they feel like the future doesn't hold anything positive for them and the fourth one is to strengthen their relationships with people who are in their life who are still alive the fifth one is to help them narrate the story of the death to be able to tell themselves the story of the death and also to be able to share it with other people the sixth theme is to learn to live with reminders. People who have prolonged grief disorder often find that they want to avoid triggers of their grief there, and so they avoid reminders of the person who died. So we try to help them find a way around that. And then the last one is to connect with their memories, because that's a way really of one of the best ways to keep the person with you in, in your life after you've lost someone. Kimberly had actually gone through these steps on her own. Oh, absolutely. Th these things are actually 
the things I've done, all, all the things I've done to process it. In addition to these seven steps, there are six derailers or things that can derail your processing of grief. By knowing about them, we can keep an eye out for the derailers and eventually identify and figure out ways around them. They're just places where people get kind of stuck. They, they are complex because they're both helpful and also problematic. The first one is the, is the sense of protest and disbelief that almost everyone has right after someone close dies. The second one is imagining alternative scenarios, which in psychology we call counterfactual thinking. And it's a very natural thing to do, but it can become a problem if you're not able to resolve it or set it aside. The third one is worrying about grief itself, sort of wanting to hold on to it, getting caught up in trying to decide whether it's too much or too little or how much grief the person should have. And then the fourth one is is avoiding the grief triggers. And then the survivor guilt, which is that feeling of uneasiness or discomfort when anything positive happens or feeling good about your own life. And then the next one is caregiver self-blame. And the last one is feeling a sense of disconnection or difficulty really connecting with other people, even though you want them around, you can't, you can't really let yourself trust them fully and, and get connected. For Kimberly, the process of overcoming her derailers was different when she lost her aunt than when she lost her mom. The loss of my mother still was the loss I grieved the most about because, yeah, it's it's your mother and I had also a special bond with her. I was a mother's girl. That connection cannot be gone, even though she is gone, but that feeling of your mother can't be gone. Because of how it went, because of an accident and you don't have control of it and she's, she's just like immediately gone. You didn't have to, the time to say goodbye. The process of grief was longer for me and more intense than the loss of my aunt. It wasn't that Kimberly was any less sad about the loss of her aunt. The grief just felt different. I knew she was suffering from depression the last year, and I knew that she decided to to step out of life. I knew that will come. I already had some moments with her to talk about it. After her aunt passed, Kimberly was able to spend time with her body, preparing her for the memorial service. Kimberly never got to say goodbye to her mother, so seeing her aunt after she had died was an important milestone in coming to terms with her death. After she she died, she left letters and she left things for me so that the process of grief will be in less time. Also, the caring after when she was dead, I cared for her, I make her like beautiful and stuff. And yeah, that really helped me to to process it. But I didn't have the chance to do that with my own mother because I had too much on my own because I was recovering from 
from all those things. Hearing Kimberly speak so openly about loss made me wonder why it's so rarely discussed. Most people don't feel comfortable talking about it. So we really work with people to help them feel comfortable talking to themselves about it and to find at least one confidant in their life that they can really share their thoughts and feelings about grief with. We can't just go around talking about our grief to everyone on the, you know, the way that we, we may feel like it. People sometimes feel like doing that. It's really all that's on their mind, but they do have to kind of decide when they want to do that and when not. In the end, it's not about recovering from grief, but adapting to it, learning to find a place for it in your life. One of the things that we emphasizes that grief is permanent after we lose someone close. And it it finds a place in our life as long as our life is more or less, you know, in whatever context that we've adapted to, because that's, that's kind of what living things do, right? We adapt to the world around us. When the world changes in a meaningful way, people we love affect our lives in so many ways. And when they, when we lose them, when they die, it just has a huge impact on our life. And it takes a while to really come to terms with that and adapt to it in a way that we can move forward in a positive way. It's mostly positive mindset, but also don't run away from your pain. You have to consistently look yourself in the mirror and reflect and find the help you need. And this is actually a beautiful thing. It's not scary or weakness, it's strength. Find the way that works for you, but also find what you need. Do you need someone that listens to you? Do you need uh, a friend? Do you need just maybe being alone, go to the beach and just cry over there? Of what, what is it that you need and go find that. Remember eight-year-old Kimberly in the back of that helicopter? She's now a Paralympian on her way to Tokyo. Sometimes bad things happen to good people, but it's how we respond that shapes who we become. To follow Kimberly on her journey to Tokyo, check out her blog at KimberlyAlkamata.com. Thanks for joining us on Flame Bears the woman athletes carrying Tokyo's torch. Find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for Flame Bears. To learn more about Dr. Shear's work at the Center for Complicated Grief at Columbia School of Social Work, visit complicatedgrief.org. Be sure to tune into the next episode where we speak with Madeline McAfee and Tanya Beths of the Australian Olympic handball team about juggling work and health while being a professional athlete. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe on your listening platform so you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, please leave us a review. I can't tell you how much we'd appreciate your support. Thank you to producer Michelle Poulin for taking the lead on script writing this episode and to Maddie Olenu for her partnership efforts. Thanks as always to Dino Cataneo for his mentorship. Lastly, clinical psychologist Dr. Lauren Breithaupt is looking for women athletes to participate in her clinical trial at Mass General Hospital. She's researching the impact of missed periods on mental health, which is most common in high-performing female athletes. If you're a 14 to 30-year-old female athlete 
Visit AnnaResearch.com backslash react study for more information. You don't have to be in Massachusetts or in the U.S. to participate. Everyone is welcome. We'll catch you on our next episode of Flame Bears. <laughs>